Keeping it sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. If there is anyone out there who still doubts that America is a place where all things are possible, America was founded on liberty and independence and not government coercion, domination, and control. We are born free, and we will stay free. Tonight, we renew our resolve that America will never be a socialist country. What magic wand do you have? A really strong job report to start the year, finishing really after a very strong year last year. 2.6 million jobs created last year, and, and here the first month of this year, 304,000 net new jobs. That's more than economists had expected. And now, Stacy Washington. Welcome to the program. We are live and direct to you from the heartland, and I'm so excited about today's program. Listen, we have a lot to discuss because um, I was waiting to see if the other shoe was going to drop, and not only did the shoe drop, but all of the, the, the other attendant clothing articles dropped on the Jesse Smollett case. Dude has been arrested and charged, and uh, the people in Chicago and other places who felt maligned now have some uh, vindication, if you will, that this guy was creating this fake hoax crime because he didn't like his salary at the television show Empire. But the other shoe that's dropped is that uh, we're, we're, we're not going to discuss the fact that this was done to malign Trump supporters. Trump supporters were the club, the billy club, that was going to be used to uh, create a better income for this guy because Trump supporters are all racist. And we know that's not true, but the media participated. They were complicit. Everyone who believed him immediately without checking the facts, everyone who started blaming President Trump for this, they're all responsible. They all share in the blame here because they amplified the voice of this. Really, honestly, perhaps he has a little bit of mental illness because this isn't even his first foray. He he faked the letter. He faked the hate, the hate crime itself. And he uh, pled no contest before to doing something similar some years ago. So he's a whole separate bag of crazy cats himself. But there's the issue of the media just buying into this whole cloth and accepting it. And then parroting this this mantra, Trump supporters, evil, racist, MAGA hat wearing, you know, Billy Club wielding, you know, they beat you up in the middle of the night in the middle of a polar vortex, that kind of stuff. It's just, it's kind of crazy to see. So today on the program, we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the Mueller investigation winding down and how funny it is that Mueller can only issue his report when President Trump is out of the country. So next week, President Trump is going to travel to, uh, I'm not sure which, uh, oh, He's traveling to Vietnam now. Yeah. Korea. He's going to be in the Far East. He's going to be discussing um, some very important issues to our national security and, and our you know foreign relations of the, the entirety of that. And this is a planned trip. So it's not like nobody knew it was going to happen. And that's when they're going to issue the Mueller report. Now, I, I think they're going to issue it while he's out of town because that's what they always do. They always bring the big news out of the DOJ whenever the president's not available. So he'll be up in Air Force One with an hour time lag. You know, the Internet's fantastic. And Air Force One is a primo piece of equipment and technology. But 
there's still a lag for him getting information and news when he's up in the air traveling, you know, 18 hours at a stretch and doing air refueling. So it's really interesting that they're choosing to issue the report next week while they know he's not going to be in the United States in real time to be able to respond on Twitter or step into the Rose Garden and do a quick press conference or, you know, so he's going to have to work with these moving parts. Uh, We're also going to speak to Jonathan Butcher today. He's a senior policy analyst at the Center for Education Policy Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Apparently, the West Virginia teachers have gotten their their way. They went on strike to prevent West Virginian students from having the option of exercising their right to say, I want to go to a school choice. Like, I, I want to choose my school. I want to go to a charter school. I want to go to some other school besides the K-12 through liberal indoctrination center. And I want my taxes to follow. And the teachers are like, oh, no, you don't. You're going to come over here and get this education. And if you don't, you're still going to pay for it. Now, let, let's go on strike. And so they won that thing. So he's going to come on and talk to us about that. I, I'm just really surprised that we still have, even to this day, this ability to say someone is an alleged attacker. Like if someone commits an act of terror, shoots up a school, blows up you know, a federal building or something like that, They allegedly blew it up. They allegedly shot it up. They allegedly, allegedly, allegedly. Now, that's because we have the presumption of innocence in this country. So I've always just, you know, bitten my tongue with this whole allegedly thing, because in my mind, I think, you know, if I don't if I don't believe in innocent until proven guilty, then I'm going to say it's not allegedly. But I saw with my own eyes that this person did it. But allegedly just indicates that they haven't been found guilty of what they maybe you saw them do with your own eyes. But notice we didn't have Jesse Smollett was allegedly attacked by MAGA hat wearing Trump supporters. It's never allegedly unless the person involved is a Democrat. Now we're hearing Jesse Smollett allegedly guilty of, uh, you know, uh, hoax. How is he allegedly guilty if he what if the attack on him wasn't allegedly an attack? I mean, carry it on through, be equal, be even do the same thing for every person or don't do it at all. It's just kind of crazy. I, I, so right now I'm going to pivot over to this, um, this story. Now, obviously this is an Israeli company. The, the head of this company is the person you're going to hear in this news clip. He's talking about this breakthrough science that um, will enable them. He says within a year or possibly more, obviously, you know, could be a year, but possibly more, they're going to have a cure for cancer. And he says it's coming from the treatment protocols that they use for AIDS patients. Now, I found this to be very interesting. At the end of the video, because we couldn't, we couldn't play the whole five minutes for the show, but the, the end of the video, he talks a little bit about, um, you know, there's a disclaimer. Look, this possibly couldn't work. It's, you know, it's, it's still in the early stages. It hasn't had FDA testing or approval. There haven't been clinical trials. And he admits all of that. But I want to just revel in the fact that Something that has really been meant for our harm, which is the AIDS epidemic, something that obviously America has been at the forefront of leading for treatment for AIDS, but that's something that was, you know, you're trying to treat the AIDS epidemic, that something from that could come to to be a, a good treatment for cancer is just pretty amazing. And I, I, so many people that I know who have either battled cancer or are currently battling cancer, going through chemotherapy and radiation And it has just been, it's brutal. It's brutal to watch them wage the war against this disease. And ultimately, because 
you know, usually 80% of the cancer is already there when it's discovered. So it's had so much time to metastasize and fester within the body that people don't have a chance to, to win against it. And so, you know, our God is a healer. He is ready and able to heal us. But isn't it fantastic when he gives people the idea to use a treatment protocol from one illness to possibly create a new treatment protocol for something that has really been, um, we, we do our best, but cancer takes many more lives than, than it should in this country. So here is, here is you'll, you'll hear a different uh, group of people. It's the, the actual company person, the researcher, a person interviewing him. And it's just a, a quick little news bite because I want you to have this information. And I thought it'd be fantastic for us as believers to pray that their work would come to fruition and that they actually would find this. It's not a cure per se, but it's a treatment, an effective treatment that would eradicate all of the cancer. And the majority of cancer patients, it's number two. Because, you know, HIV is very mutagenic uh, creature. Same, same as cancer. This is the problem with cancer, that is very mutagenic and these mutations help, help the cancer escape the therapy. Here in this tiny lab in Nestziona, Israel, these two scientists came up with a theory they hope will cure cancer. They call it mutato. That stands for multi-target toxin. The main thing here is multiple targeting. Instead of attacking one target at a time, we connect together several peptides and we attack several targets at a time and because of that the cancer won't be able statistically won't be able to escape the therapy and this is what happened with AIDS and this is what would happen here in cancer. And they point out since this cocktail specifically targets cancer cells it is not as harmful to healthy ones. The other thing is because of this targeting peptides are connected together and there's a, what we call the avidity effect, the side effect would be much, much, much lower. So it would be like an antibiotic. So less side effects because everyone knows that the, the side effects from cancer treatments are so debilitating and, it, and it's such a rough road to go through. So to lessen the effect of those and to, while you're doing that, increase the opportunity for people to actually experience, uh, you know, really the eradication of the cancer from everywhere that this drug would kind of behave almost like, and I know he didn't say this, but in my mind when I was listening to him, I, it sounds like it's behaving kind of like a drone on a search and destroy mission where it just goes everywhere where there's cancer. It leaves the healthy cells alone. So instead of blasting the entire body with chemotherapy or radiation where every cell has to be impacted, only the bad cells are impacted and they're the ones that receive the targeted treatment to get rid of them. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing. So um, I want to continue on on our quest to be encouraged about who we are in Christ. And that is our daily confession for today. And so uh, again, why do I, why do I, why do I harp on this? Why do I keep going back to this? Because when we don't know who we are in Christ, we're much more susceptible to the temptations of the enemy. When we think we are that downtrodden, horrible, you know, the, the I don't deserve forgiveness, the kind of conversation that goes on in your head where you're not thinking about thinking those thoughts. Those thoughts are on autopilot. They're, they're bombarding you constantly. And then you have the accuser. You, you, if you do make a mistake, when you do sin, cause you're going to, you're a human being, then he's right there saying, see, you going to church doesn't work. See, you, you, you st study that Bible doesn't work. You, you think you're somebody cause you go to Bible study, but look at you. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. You've made a mistake here. You've made a mistake there. 
sometimes it's the judgment and unforgiveness of others where you've harmed them or you've wronged them and you go to apologize or you go to try to work it out and they won't forgive you. And that can pile onto the little, it's like a little reel that's going in your head all the time telling you, you can't, you can't, you can't, you won't, you won't. Even though the Bible says this, this, and that is not for you. Well, God has called you to be a saint. And in Christ Jesus, you have wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And that's 1 Corinthians 1.30. My body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who dwells in me. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? I am joined to the Lord and am one spirit with him. But the one united with the Lord is one spirit with him. 1 Corinthians 6.17. God leads you in the triumph and knowledge of Christ. The hardening of your mind has been removed in Christ, but their minds were closed for this very day. The same veil remains when they hear the old covenant read, but that's not your situation. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. That's second Corinthians three fourteen. You are literally in the land, the promised land. And God has for you, he has salvation and he has the ability for you to be made right with him. You can repent and have your sin eternally separated from you. And then you can walk in victory, meaning that you're a new creature in Christ. So then if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. What is old has passed away. Look, what is new has come. Second Corinthians 5, 17. I have become the righteousness of God in Christ. I have been made one with all who are in Christ Jesus. I am no longer a slave, but a child and an heir. I have been set free in Christ. I've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. I am chosen, holy, and blameless before God. I am redeemed and forgiven by the grace of Christ. I have been predestined by God to obtain an inheritance. I have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Because of God's mercy and love, I have been made alive with Christ. I am seated in the heavenly places with Christ. What does that come from? And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 2, 6. So there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And you are able to receive not just forgiveness from sins, but freedom from the accuser of the brethren and the ability to walk in faith, knowing that your sins have already been paid for. Someone said this to our Bible study group yesterday, that we we run around acting as if we still have work to do to make sure that we can be forgiven. The work's already been done. It was completed on the cross. And all we have to do is walk in it. So be encouraged. When we get back, we're going to have Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst over at the Heritage Foundation. Keep it here. Stuck on the healthcare roller coaster? Still paying those high premiums? And strapped into huge deductibles? Not knowing what's around the next turn? Well, then let me tell you about a sound, sensible healthcare choice that really is affordable it's MediShare. 
the healthcare sharing solution people like you have been trusting in for more than 25 years. MediShare members report saving around $500 a month on their healthcare costs, and they never pay for things they don't believe in. Time to say goodbye to that healthcare roller coaster and say hello to MediShare. Call star star 345 to find out how much you can save on your health care. MediShare. Call star star 345. Message and data rates may apply. That's star star 345. Hi, I'm Crawford Ritz with a Legacy Moment. Once Ken and I were having dinner with several other couples when our good friend Dennis Rainey asked us, what is the most courageous thing you've ever done? We thought for a moment, then someone volunteered, paying creditors at great personal sacrifice. And another talked about caring for a loved one with terminal illness. And somebody else said, continuing to love a child who refuses to love me in return. God speaks to Joshua about courage in Joshua chapter 1. Listen to this moving scene in verses 1 through 5. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I'm giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you. Just as I promised to Moses, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. God said, Joshua, you're going to have to go for it. You can't allow past victories or disappointments to stop you. Moses is dead, and you have to keep moving. Secondly, he said to respond to the challenge and the call. Arise, get up. You're not going to get this land by just sitting there looking at it. Then thirdly, Joshua needed to believe and act on God's promises. God said, no man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Act on that, buddy. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. If you're faced with a challenge today, please don't quit. It may be too big for you, but it is not too big for God and courage will take you to where God wants you to be. Crawford Loritz is senior pastor of Fellowship Bible Church in suburban Atlanta, Georgia. For more information, go to livingalegacy.org, livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Find out more about what we do here and your home, your radio home, American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk by going to urbanfamilytalk.com and AFR.net. If you go to Urban, you can find out about the Marriage and Family Conference, which is coming up in June. And there are going to be some amazing speakers there. It's a ministry wide conference, which means we are putting everything into this and we can't wait to meet you and shake your hand. Uh, Last year's conference was the inaugural conference and it was a blast. And I think this one is going to exceed our expectations and be even greater than the one last year. I'm expecting great things. And so go on over there and register so you have a spot to spend time with us for this really informative conference on marriage, life, and family. Right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Butcher. He's the Senior Policy Analyst, Center for Education Policy Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Jonathan, thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. So I was really disappointed to see this outcome in, uh, is it West Virginia? Yeah, West Virginia, where teachers actually got together to prevent students from accessing alternative forms of education. And as I understand it, West Virginia is not exactly stellar when it comes to their achievement 
uh, standardized testing and, and educational outcomes. So that's right. This is the second year in a row that West Virginia teachers, led by the union, conducted a strike. Now, last year they went on strike asking for uh, higher salaries and, and better, better pay and benefit packages. This year it was different, right? Last year they got everything they asked for, and so why not use it again, this time for political purposes, to actually block parent choice in education? And they successfully did that. They created a blockade and prevented the state from adopting laws that, frankly, are available uh, pretty widely across the country. So I, and I know, you know, it's, it's, so I know a lot of teachers, um, and I actually was on elected school board here in, in our local school district where we used to live. And so I knew a lot of teachers leading up to that. And a lot of them felt as if charter schools were substandard options and that all they did was siphon off the money that would better be spent in their school districts. And their, their view of it was schools are underfunded. And so for years, I kind of bought into that. I was, I was a conservative back then, but obviously my kids were in the school district, in public school, and I really thought that the teachers had a lot of great points. And it was really a shock to me, Jonathan, to find out that only about 40% of the kids in the district, so about 40% of the, the taxpayer dollars, the kids, they get 100% of the taxpayer dollars, but they only get 40% of the kids, and they're still asking for more money, which to me points to a, a kind of an endemic problem, even about the way we discuss this. Um, and when we look at this story, it's really obvious that they don't feel like anyone should have the option to even go outside of public schools. Well, sure. The proposal that was before lawmakers in West Virginia was for seven. That's it. Seven charter schools. It would have allowed the creation of just seven in the whole state, as well as what, what would have been a thousand education savings accounts, which are uh, private school, uh, private choice options, not just for schools, but also for additional therapies and tutoring services and um, the ability to stay for college. They're a very unique uh, savings vehicle and, and way for, for families to provide a customized learning option for their children. So this was a pretty modest, you know, pretty modest proposal for families in a state that has none, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, charter school laws are widely available across the country. There's some 44 states in D.C. allow for the creation of charter schools, and education savings accounts today are available in six states. So um, private, uh, private school choice uh, now can be found in uh, at least half of all U.S. states. So, you know, this is something that uh, West Virginia is definitely on on the outside of, and um, and it's really unfortunate. I mean, these this was an opportunity at the very end, especially those savings accounts would have specifically been for children with special needs. So, I mean, it's it's just very hard to justify that this had anything to do with students and and was just entirely about you know a political power. And so I'm, I want to I want to make it clear for the listeners. This story is about the West Virginia teachers launching their second strike in a year on Tuesday to protest legislation that, among other things, would create the state's first charter schools. Now, the unions viewed the legislation as lacking their input and saw it as a retaliation for last year's nine day strike. And, and during that strike, they got a five percent raise and they were promised an additional five percent this year, which five percent, Jonathan, that's way above what normal people in the private sector get as a raise on the year on a yearly basis unless they've done something extraordinary and are getting a promotion. Well, sure. And these, you know, what, what was so surprising about the ability to, to sort of wield this power over the legislature is that, um, you know, West Virginia is a place where 
they have had uh, pretty mediocre uh, outcomes, both uh, in terms of reading scores, uh, all the way up to uh, even college completion rates uh, in the state. Uh, they, they have uh, struggled, I think, to create a system that provides every child a great opportunity. And these, you know, this small effort to uh, allow for the creation of some independent public schools, independent public charter schools, as well as the education savings accounts, this was, you know, a small step, right, to begin to um, create some more opportunities. And that's really what the the students in the state needed. Yeah. And so this is also, it goes against the very premise of people who say they care about educating kids, which is, There are some kids for which a public school environment is perfect. It's optimal. And you see that in the way that they perform. But when you have one out of every four or five students in public schools nationally, and and really the numbers are more far more abysmal than that. I'm just speaking of suburban districts that are usually AAA rated blue ribbon schools. They still fail one out of every four to five kids. That one out of every four to five kids, 20 to 25 percent of the kids in the district, if they were given another educational option that their parents didn't have to basically go into hawk for and, you know, sell their house or sell, you know, empty out their savings accounts, then those kids would be a part of the kids in America who are actually getting an education that's fit enough for them to go on to college, technical school, the military, whatever they choose. Well, sure. And the charter schools have been a key, um, a key part of this, especially in urban areas, right? Uh, the charter schools that have, um, uh, that have cropped up in big cities have been just a lifeline for families. Uh, and there are, um, you know, there's there's evidence to back this up from New York to Florida um, and beyond. I mean, these are, you know, these these schools have been something that really have sort of um, energized um, families and uh, whole communities now that support um, these, you know, these schools of choice for their students. Uh, and you know, there's there's more than just test scores. I think that parents are talking about today. Things like uh, school safety have become big issues. And uh, there's there's even uh, research now that that we have on charter schools showing that they are safer in some areas than than the district alternatives. So, you know, this is a big deal, right? I mean, this, these these are options that are changing the way we think about learning and what should be available to students. Um, so now, I think uh, families in West Virginia have you know to wait another year and sort of ask, you know, who gave the who, who made the teachers union another you know arm of the state state government. So next year, what is the likelihood that teachers will feel the pressure from parents, um, not the happy parents? Obviously, happy people don't protest. They don't complain. They don't, you know, that, that, that's, that's the point. But there are, are unhappy families in the state of West Virginia who want another option for their kids. What's the likelihood that they get together and actually do something about this? Well, I hope there's a strong likelihood. You know, there are groups in West Virginia, um, groups like the Cardinal Institute that have been leading the way. Uh, there on uh, this, the issues of school choice and, and, and others. And, you know, they, they were telling me the other day that now with what happened with this particular piece of this particular proposal is that going forward, there can almost be no discussion about what's going to be happening to improve educational options for students in the state without a talk of school choice and, and parental choice and education. So they can take that away, I think, from this year and say, hey, look, now we We've made a we've made a mark here, and now it has to be a part of the conversation going forward. So, so it should be. I mean, it should be something. Um, it should be something that parents demand of of state lawmakers and 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 those, like you said, for those that are happy in their 
assigned school, you know, no one's going to take that away from them, right? I mean, that's something that will still be available to them. Public schools still open across the country every year. Um, but there needs to be a very hard discussion about providing quality options for those students who are struggling or who do, do need something different. So are there any other, uh, you know, maybe examples or templates that the people in West Virginia can kind of use to say, hey, you know what, um, we have had this problem before and this is how we tackled it or, you know, the, this this is what we saw in another state and kind of to, to spur them on um, to, to give them some hope that they can get this done. It's very common, especially in, in school choice proposals, that it it takes some uh, takes some persistence. I think because the the well heeled opposition um, is, uh, is is quick to, uh, to to step up and block these these ideas. Uh, teachers unions are uh, can be extremely powerful, and they um, have a great deal of of, uh, of resources that they've built up over the years to use for political purposes, despite what they may say. Um, and so, you know, it. it there have been states like uh, Mississippi, for example. It took it did take a couple of years, but they were able to enact an education savings account proposal just a few years ago. Um, there are other states that enacted uh, charter school laws, for example, and it took a few years before a number of charter schools began to open. For example, South Carolina, I think, is a good one, uh, where they had a charter school law for many years before uh, the momentum built up, and now um, there are 40 or more charter schools across this, you know, across the state. So. It, it has happened elsewhere in the country. It is something that once parents have, they um, they really relish, and and the parent surveys indicate that. Uh, so you know, it's it's definitely a project that uh, that should be continued all you know all the way to all the way to the end for the sake of of giving every child a chance to succeed. Uh, I'm so glad that you are in this fight with with the good people of West Virginia. Um, and but I do see kind of a trend here where you have West Virginia, also Arizona, Denver, Kentucky, Los Angeles, Oklahoma and Washington State all having these teachers walk off the job. It feels a little bit like a coordinated effort. Am I tinfoil hat in it there or is that accurate? Well, what makes me uh, very concerned is that so far the, the strikes have, have gotten everything that they've asked for. And, and that's, you know, that's troubling because. Now I think West Virginia has shown us an example of when you provide, when you give in to the unions all the way, then they have every reason to use strikes in the future, not just to improve or uh, change uh, working conditions or get more taxpayer money for teacher salaries. They will use it for policy purposes. They will use it for political gain, and they'll use it to um, uh, to, to achieve their political goals at the legislature. That's you know that's a that changes the dynamics of the way that um, you know elected representation is supposed to work. So I think lawmakers need to begin to see that there are other voices out there in addition to unions about what is best for uh, for students around the country uh, and in their state. And and those you know those voices need to be heard and need to be taken seriously. So I'm. I'm excited that just in having this conversation here on the radio, we've educated some people and hopefully people will feel uh, spurred on to, to activism. 
what would you recommend as we close out the interview here? What would you recommend, Jonathan, to, um, you know, a, a bunch of active moms who are in a school district or maybe some people who they've pre- previously organized around politics, but this is something that they're passionate about? What would their first step be in trying to get get this done to actually create a movement that could bring school choice to West Virginia? Well, I think uh, there's always power in numbers, and I think uh, getting groups together and then contacting uh, free market groups in your state. Um, there's a group called the State Policy Network that keeps track of um, uh, these these state-based groups around the country who are active in uh, school choice efforts as well as um, other public policy efforts. Uh, the Heritage Foundation has a number of resources on our site, heritage.org, to, uh, to help learn more about these issues so that they can know what the alternatives are to uh, whatever may be, um, uh, if they feel like they're sort of backed into a corner by school assignment, what is available to other families elsewhere. Uh, There's information about that on our site. And um, I think, you know, eventually uh, coming together around big events like National School Choice Week, which uh, Mm -hmm. just finished back in January, events like that begin to capture the attention of lawmakers. When they begin to see power in numbers, as the unions certainly demonstrate, right? They need mm-hmm. to see that there are power in numbers elsewhere, too. Um, and, uh, and you know, getting those ideas out there and learning more about them is, uh, is a great first step. Fantastic. And I hope people will do that. I hope people won't be discouraged by the fact that the teachers' union, you know, they tried something, it worked, so they tried it again. Kids do that, too. Toddlers do that. It's human nature to repeat actions that bring the desired results. But if you want to make a change, you don't have to have every parent. You don't have to have every uh, organized group. You just have to have an active group of people who are interested in seeing an outcome. And then you have to get to work on it and not give up. And I'm, I just think it's, it's a travesty with West Virginia's numbers, their, their metrics on education, that they wouldn't be trying everything in the kitchen sink to educate kids. So uh, Jonathan Butcher, Senior Policy Analyst at the Heritage Foundation, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you. All right. Talk to you again soon. Uh, I'm I'm so like I saw the story and I was like, wow, this is so disappointing. But he sounds really hopeful. And I hope that that's what you take from this. You know, this this is a hopeful time. And um, one of the things that is super, super interesting about it is that in spite of all of these actions taken by teachers unions and other groups around the country, um, liberal organizations, we're seeing more and more parents opt out of public schools and into different options, whether it's homeschooling, uh, kind of hybrid education, where some of it's done online through a university or a college or for elementary school kids. It's the K through 12 public school online. And then they join a co-op and do some classes there. And then the mom homeschools a little bit or the dad homeschools a little bit. There's so much available to us now. There's no excuse. Uh, Get out there, check out the school choice movement, and make something happen for your kids. So when we get back, we're going to be talking again about uh, Jesse Smollett and the Chicago Police Superintendent and uh, everybody weighing in on this thing. And we'll take your calls. And uh, we'll take your calls at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Keep it here.
does it take to be a sports success and a team player? Here's Pro Football Hall of Fame coach Tony Dungy with today's Uncommon Moment. In 1935, before football helmets had face masks, Don Hudson was helping to create the modern game of football. Back then, teams almost never threw the forward pass. But Don Hudson was so fast with such brilliant hands, he practically invented the position of wide receiver. He developed the routes and techniques that are still being used by receivers in the league today. His 99 career touchdown receptions remained an unbroken league record until 1989, more than 40 years after he retired. Don Hudson was an uncommon talent who did his own thing and forever changed the way the game is played. Tony Dungy, best-selling author of Quiet Strength and the Uncommon Book Series. Discover more at CoachDungy.com. Pastor D. The Back to God movement always reminds people that we got to know who we are and whose we are. And we are children of the Most High God. Made in His image and likeness. That's what Genesis 1.26 says. Made in His image and likeness. So that means if Yeshua could walk on water, guess what? We can too. Each weekday at 4 o'clock Central on Urban Family Talk. And let's get Hi, friends. There's a new show in town on Urban Family Talk nightly, 7 p.m. Central. Join me, C.L. Bryant, as we build the bridge to conversation throughout our great nation, the greatest nation on the face of the planet the greatest success story the world has ever known. Nightly, the C.L. Bryant Show over Urban Family Talk, 7 p.m. Securing America. During the day, Antelope Wells border station in New Mexico was fairly calm. Border Patrol comes across their share of illegal crossings from Mexico into the U.S., but as of late, that number is on the rise. There's uh, ground sensors that are placed strategically so we, there is a sensor activation, we have to go investigate. Border Patrol agents say this particular crossing has encountered at least 28 groups of 100 or more migrants illegally crossing into the U.S. Border Patrol agent Romero Cordero says Mexican smugglers are trying to overwhelm this facility so they can hide illegal activity. They think they're saturating uh, the agents that are working in this area by bringing large groups of people who are turning themselves in. Since October 1st, Border Patrol has apprehended about 5,000 migrants illegally crossing the border in large groups, including 330 Central Americans who were apprehended here Monday. In Antelope Wells, New Mexico, Charles Watson, Fox News. You can download episodes of Stacy of the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. This announcement today recognizes that Empire actor Jesse Smollett took advantage of the pain and anger of racism to promote his career. I'm left hanging my head and asking why. Why would anyone, especially an African-American man, use the symbolism of a noose to make false accusations? How could someone look at the hatred and suffering associated with that symbol and see an opportunity to manipulate that symbol to further his own public profile? How can an individual who's been embraced by the city of Chicago turn around and slap everyone 
in this city in the face by making these false claims. Bogus police reports cause real harm. They do harm to every legitimate victim who's in need of support by police and, and investigators as well as the citizens of this city. Yeah, it's, it's one of those things where you just, um, you keep seeing and hearing the story. And what it does is, first of all, they're, they're, unfortunately, there's always going to be some kind of crime going on, right? We're, we're never going to be a crime-free society. So there's always something going on. But all this does is it makes people very skeptical when they do hear something has happened. And then on the flip side, it further disillusions Americans about the state of our media right now. We actually have a media, mainstream media, that is so in the tank for the Democrats and so in the tank for liberal causes that there's no horrible thing they won't believe about someone who voted for Donald Trump. And that much is completely evident. Now, there occasionally will be a bright spot, a little, you know, a little glimmer of hope for us. And one of those bright spots in this story is Willie Geist. He says the media shouldn't have been rooting for an outcome. Now, I want to listen to this, but first off, I want to give you a chance to phone in. If you want to join the program, the call lines are open at 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. And you can call in and talk about anything we've discussed today or whatever you want to bring up. Um, so Willie Geist is not a conservative, but he sometimes will say things where you're like, oh, wait, what did he say? That sounds like something a normal person would say. And this is one of those instances. It's number four. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a good lesson for a lot of people, including people in our business, about not rooting for an outcome. You see a story. Just to wait. Some people hope it's true and they dive in on it before we know anything about it. I was we were talking earlier this morning on Sunday today when the story came out. I said in a script that Jesse, Jesse Smollett claims to have been attacked. And I was attacked on, because online. Because How dare you say claim? How yeah. dare you not take him at his word? Our job is not to take people at their word. It's to follow the facts and what? find out what happened. And so how often do we even see that? So it's interesting to hear him say that's what their job is. But how often do they follow the facts and see where the, the facts take them? More often than not, we see them kind of crafting um, a narrative, admitting that they want to tell people what to say and what to believe, and then leaving the rest of it, the truth, to kind of fall wherever it may. And I get it. They want to win. They want their causes to win. But don't we all win when the truth wins? Don't we all experience the benefits of having the truth out there as opposed to just whatever people want to make up or whatever people want to uh, think or believe? So I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm clearly not uh, one of those people who the, the whole hate crime thing, all crime has got hate in it because it goes against God's creation. And as a person with a permanent tan, it, I always, it's always surprising when people hear me say, yeah, I'm not for hate crimes legislation, because what you're saying is that if you murder someone because of the color of their skin and another person murders someone because they stole their boyfriend or, you know, they got a promotion and they didn't or whatever, that the one person's life is worth more than the other person's life. They were both killed. It was murder in both instances. Both of those should receive the maximum punishment applicable under the law with, you know, the factors and extenuating circumstances taken into consideration after a jury trial of their peers and a judge, you know, does the sentencing. It should be the same for all of it. 
that's a very unpopular position to have. People constantly, well, I can't believe you. So that must mean you're against a whole lot of other things that are carve outs for the black community. I'm, I'm not against trying to right wrongs. I'm not against us using the power of legislation to, uh, you know, kind of create different systems by which we can be, have giant blind justice and, and right things that have been improperly applied before. But hate crimes legislation basically says some lives are more valuable than others. And, and that is what uh, civil rights activists have been working so hard over the decades to fight, to, to eliminate the idea that some people are worth more than others. We'll never be able to completely eradicate the idea. But when we create laws and legislation that respect one group over another, it puts us in a position where we're talking out of both sides of our mouth. We're, we're creating a system where injustice can reign and make us suspect of each other. And, and that not that the, kind of the big deal? We're suspecting each other and we're saying, well, you, you know, you think this, well, you think that, well, you know, you think these people are better than those people. Well, you, you think that this group of people should have more than this or more than that. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm hopeful in some instances, but then in others, especially with this Jesse Smollett case where we just watched as people just literally took the story and ran with it. Um, it's, it's just, it is, it doesn't make you feel hopeful. Um, so now I want to pivot over to this story. The U S Supreme court, um, ruled that unanimously, um, that you can't have excessive fines. Um, and this is something that we've covered before on the show. You can't have excessive fines at the state level. And so you might say, well, I mean, who really cares? Well, the story hinges around, um, this, this guy, he, he was involved in some drug dealing, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so he, he also was a drug user, but the circumstances under which he became, you know, in interacting with the police are not really the main event. It's, it's important to the story, but it's not the main story. The Supreme Court actually ruled unanimously that states cannot impose excessive fines, fees, and forfeiture, forfeitures, <laughs> say that three times fast, forfeitures as criminal penalties. They'd already ruled that the, um, they'd already ruled that the actual federal government couldn't do this, but a state had said, yeah, the state, the state can do it. You feds can't do it, but we can. Now, when you hear how this worked out, you're going to, I, I, I started off no sympathy for the guy, but then as I read through, I was like, okay, uh, this, this decision actually united the court's liberals and conservatives and made clear that the eighth amendment's prohibition against excessive fines actually applies to states and localities as well as the federal government. So here's the story. His name's Tyson Timms, and he sold less than $400 worth of heroin to undercover police officers in 2013. Upon conviction, Indiana seized his Land Rover, which he had purchased for more than $42,000 with the proceeds of his father's life insurance policy. So the seizure is what's at issue here. He actually was incarcerated briefly. He bonded out. He paid the fine, and he was, he was actually adjudicated through the court system and, and levied a fine for selling the drugs. He paid the fine and then tried to get his car back. And the state of Indiana said they had a material interest in keeping the vehicle and getting rid of it and using the proceeds of it to, you know, fight drugs, interdiction, all that stuff. Well, this is totally like that's not OK. They actually 
took it all the way to the Indiana su- Supreme Court. And then from there, it went to the U.S. Supreme Court, where they've been smacked down handily. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. Um, usually, and this is liberals and libertarians and conservatives, talk about what we see as increasingly, increasingly greedy governments. And this is supported by a study from Harvard University and the National Institute of Justice, which found that about 10 million people owe more than $50 billion as a result of fines, fees, and forfeitures. That does not sound like the activity of a free people uh, or a government that believes people can be free. Um, So many of the fines and forfeitures are contested and reduced. The court's ruling would cut down on their imposition in the first place. So imposing, and this is is Nusrat Shodhuri, deputy director at the ACLU Racial Justice Program, says imposing monetary penalties that bury people under mountains of accumulating debt has devastating consequences on individuals, families, and entire communities, particularly low-income communities of color. The practice often leads low-income defendants further into poverty, crime, prison, and recidivism. And so, you know, they, they quote some places that I don't respect a lot, like the Southern Poverty Law Center or in the Libertarian Cato Institute, which I actually like some of the work that Cato does with their very open borders. So I kind of, you know, I can't, they, they can't sit with me at the lunch table. But if you look at what it did to this guy's life, and I know that the, the big theory is if you do the crime, you got to do the time. Got it. I don't disagree with that. But Tim's convention, conviction resulted in a year's home detention, five years probation, and about $1,200 in fees. Okay, if that's what they do to people who deal, you know, drugs, so be it. But it was the seizure of his SUV that led to the lawsuit. It was a 2012 Land Rover LR2, and it was even named a plaintiff in the case. So Wesley Hotot, senior attorney with the Institute for Justice, who argued Tim's case, said the ruling should go a long way in curtailing what is often called policing for profit, where they know you have something nice that they can actually seize. And so they just follow you around and wait for you to commit a crime, which obviously they're following criminals around, people who are known to them. And then they take the property. Police and prosecutors employ forfeiture to take someone's property, then sell it and keep the profits to fund their departments. It gives them a direct financial incentive to abuse this power and impose excessive fines. Now, I think what they should do is they should, if if they actually have a legal, lawful, constitutional reason to seize property and the proceeds of that property are gainful instead of sending it to the department that did the seizure it should be sent to a victim's fund or to some other some other something that's far away from them that that wouldn't be the impetus for them to continue to seize things just so they can fund their department now a number of national municipal groups actually defended the seizure arguing in court papers that the vehicle was used in heroin trafficking that could have generated hefty profits and that its forfeiture properly left Tim's without the ride he needed to keep dealing drugs. Now, the case actually made it to the Supreme Court from Indiana's highest court, as I mentioned. And Indiana's highest court said, y'all's, y'all's fines clause in the Constitution doesn't apply to states. Nearly all rights, such as the Second Amendment's right to bear arms for self-defense, have been extended into the states. So the right to a unanimous jury verdict under the Sixth Amendment has not so there are, you know, they, they did have some cause with which to kind of say, you, you can't make us do this. Um, Ginsburg, and this is her first ruling that she's coming out with where she's written an opinion um, since she's been out sick from her surgeries. 
She noted that other elements of the Eighth Amendment already are applicable to the states and that the amendment states that excessive bail shall not be required or excessive fines imposed nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. So for good reason, the protection against excessive fines has been a constant shield throughout Anglo-American history, Ginsburg wrote. Exorbitant tolls undermined other constitutional liberties. Excessive fines can be used, for example, to retaliate against or chill the speech of political enemies. Now, this is interesting coming from her because of the things we've seen liberals do to chill speech and silence political enemies. To see her rule in this way from the Supreme Court makes me think that although she's very liberal, far too liberal for me, she's much more in the vein of the more traditional Democrats that used to be the norm of old before the progressives took over and started ramming home these really, um, these are not American ideals. She seems to have a real desire and uh, kind of innate, she seeks, innately seeks to defend the Constitution and to extend constitutional liberties to Americans wherever they may find themselves, whether it's at the federal level, the appellate level, or even in the states. I, I just think it's a stunning ruling, um, partially because of the tack that Indiana's Supreme Court took. They really tried to preserve the funding mechanism by which they've been able to seize so much property. If you want to read this story, and it's been reported everywhere, but I have it here uh, on usatoday.com. And if you would like to read it, I'm going to stick it up right here. Let's put it right here on the Facebook page right now as I'm speaking um, so that you can get a look at it. You can just click the link and it'll take you through to the story. Um, And it's not that I care much for what happens to drug dealers in the way of their property. um, But I do think that for someone who's on, you know, some kind of petty crime, and then they lose their property or, or their home or their business or, or something that really had, you know, it's used as a funding mechanism. So you have to question the motives behind it, which means I'm looking at the criminal and saying, yeah, you did crime and you've had to do all of these things to pay it back. But now they're taking your car because it's a nice car and they can make money for the department. That's not a part of what the law calls for in the way of punishment for the crime that he committed. We have to be able to kind of parse that out. <laughs> okay, so I hear the music. We are so happy that you make your home at American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. God bless you from the heartland. If you're sticking around, we have more after our news break. If you're leaving us now, citizens, until tomorrow, Stacy on the right. Family Talk.